And our text will come from verses 33 through 56, Matthew 27, beginning with verse 33, as we look at the wonders of the cross, the wonders of the cross tonight. Paul said that the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing But unto us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You know, the story of the cross never gets old. There's so much to it. There's so much depth in it. And it, at last, becomes personal to the believer. So we're on uh, holy ground, as they would say, uh, with our text tonight. As we look at the crucifixion of Jesus and the wonders of Calvary. We'll read the text there beginning in verse 33, and then we, we have uh, three points uh, concerning the wonders of Calvary. Beginning there in verse 33 of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, They gave him wine to drink mixed with gall, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there, and above his head they put up the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. Now, from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, began saying, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately, One of them ran, and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, 
Let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus... When they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Many women were there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee while ministering to him. Among them was Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. The word of the Lord. Father in heaven, we thank you for this record of the crucifixion of our Lord. We know that in his death, he remained perfectly obedient to your command, to your will, to the plan to save man from sin. And so, Lord, tonight, uh, draw us close uh, and help us, God, to gain clearer understanding of the crucifixion, of what happened that day, most significant day. So, Lord, we depend on you for light, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen and amen. So, among the wonders of Calvary, we want to look at First of all, the words that were spoken. Now, some of the words as we began to read this account and as it unfolds, we have words of unbelief from the antagonists, from those people who would not believe, many of them uh, in the Jewish hierarchy of the priesthood. And then we'll look at the, the works, uh, the works of God that took place there at Calvary's cross. And then finally, the women. That's interesting that there at the end of this account, we have uh, Matthew's testimony that there were three women there at the cross, albeit at a distance, but yes, they were there. And we'll look at the significance of that. Well, let's, let's uh, go back here to verse 33 and we'll just let this unfold. This is a this is a uh, this is a horrible scene. You know the Romans uh, used crucifixion as their 
their choice uh, method of execution. And these, uh, these crucifixions would be public, very public, like along the roadside. The Romans would crucify all oh, the rabble-rousers, the people that uh, they didn't trust, the insurrectionists, and anyone else. They had all power. Rome ruled the world. So while this was a very public act, uh, it was a very gruesome uh, method of execution. So when we read in verse 33 that they came to a place called Golgotha, uh, we are coming to a place that would, it would excite the emotions of anyone. Your heart's going to beat a little faster. You may start to sweat. This is not, this is not, while it was an everyday occurrence, this is not something that you get used to. This was a most excruciating, agonizing death, nailing someone to uh, two pieces of wood and then uh, lifting them up into and, and, and the wood, that one vertical beam falling into a hole, and it was a spectacle. And it was especially so with Jesus, because there was so much said about him, and we have the, the garden, we have the arrest, we have his betrayal, we have all of the, the unbelief surrounding who he was, and the unbelievers are having their way with Jesus. So they come to the place uh, called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. Now, when I read that, I like to think that man in his wisdom, because a skull, we usually associate the head with that cognitive part, that thinking part, that man in his human wisdom chose to execute the Lord of life. But in that crucifixion, we see God's wisdom on display. Because this is the only way for man to be restored to a right relationship with God. And that is that God would send his only son to earth. And that that son would live perfectly. He would, he would be so far and away and above and beyond sin. And he would live this impeccable life. And then at the last hour, he would offer himself in death. And that death on a cross. And I choose to believe when I read that Golgotha means place of a skull, that God at Calvary, was exercising godly wisdom. God was bringing this wisdom to fulfillment that he might redeem man from his sin and from the guilt of sin and from the consequences of that sin. And so it unfolds here. They gave him 
wine to drink. This was a cheap wine the soldiers would have on hand. They gave him wine to drink mixed with gall, and he tasted it. That is, Jesus tasted it, and he was unwilling to drink it. And when they had crucified him, and notice in your gospel accounts, that's basically what you get of the crucifixion. You get a very short sentence. You don't get a lot of description. You don't get a lot of, you know, how long the nails were, or how, how long were the beams, or you don't get that because this was very familiar to them. And all you had to do was say one word. There they crucified him. And that tells you everything you need to know. It was an excruciating death. In fact, many times um, the, the victim, if you want to call them a victim of this death, didn't even make it to the crucifixion. I mean, they started out with the beating and the, the ripping away of the flesh with the cat of nine tails that consisted of metal and glass, uh, tied together in many straps, and uh, it would, they would lay open someone's back and with the blood and all of the blood lost. A lot of times they just didn't even make it to the crucifixion. But there Jesus is. And the Bible says here, and when they had crucified him. So he's going through this crucifixion. And they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. These soldiers, you know, that was their detail. That was their job. There they are. They're, I, I'm sure their hearts grew hard, would have to almost, toward this, this job that they had to carry out. The Bible says, in sitting down, I mean, they're, they're through, right? They're basically waiting on Jesus to die. They're, they sat down and began to keep watch over him there. Keep those, uh, keep those soldiers in your mind. Keep that image in your mind because they're going to experience some things today, that day. And above his head, they put up the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Now remember, Pilate didn't like this at all. He says, don't do that. Um, and we know from another account that this was written in three languages. So everybody would know, isn't God brilliant with this testimony of Jesus, his son? Bible says at that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. Luke records uh, more detail than any other writer on these two robbers. But there they are. So there's Jesus in the middle. There's the two robbers on either side. And uh, there's the soldiers. They're through with their gruesome work. The driving of the nails. All of this. And uh, the Bible says that there were those passing by. So there's, there's people there. And they're hurling abuse at him. And they're wagging their heads. 
Oh, look at this. You know, he had some big words, but he couldn't back it up, basically. Made all these claims, but look at him now. They're just making fun of him. Just wagging their heads, you know, as people do. And, and they were saying, you who are going to destroy... So we're talking about the words that were spoken at the cross. And these particular words are coming from those who do not believe. In fact, not only do they, do they not believe, but they are antagonistic toward Jesus. You who are going to destroy. I mean, no, no words of sympathy, uh, no, no prayers being said. They just say, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. And ironically, we know that Jesus could have saved himself. He could have called the legions of angels to come and rescue him. But isn't it interesting? If he had done that, he would not have been able to save anyone else. Because it took a death. It took a sacrifice. It took his blood shed on the cross for the sins of man, for anyone to be saved. But they're saying, if you're the son of God, if you are, if you're truly the son of God, if, you're, if you are who you say you are, come on down from the cross. In the same way, here we go, the religious people. We have the passers-by, but now even the chief priests. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying he saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come now. Down, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. They're even going to quote some scripture here. He trusts in God. Let it, God rescue him now if he delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. And then we find out more about the robbers here in verse 44. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him. With the same words. So we have the, the soldiers are watching over Jesus, verse 36. We have the passers-by who are saying these ridiculous things to Jesus. And we have the religious elite. I mean, they can't even offer a prayer. They can't even offer sympathetic words. They can't even find his, his family if they're to be found and to offer some comfort they join in the crowd. And here we have a crowd of unbelief. And this unbelief is expressed through their words of unbelief. The robbers were insulting him. The chief priests, the passers-by, they're all in it. They're all offering their ugly, unbelieving opinion about Jesus. But there are more words. As we read on down, you go down to 46, about the ninth hour. There's Jesus. We have words from Jesus. He cried out with a loud voice. What did he say? He said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The words of dereliction, we call these. Words that are deep in mystery. My God, my God, 
Why have you forsaken me? Well, at this point, you and I must remind ourselves that Jesus, according to the scriptures, has taken upon himself the sin of man. He who knew no sin became sin. That by faith, we would become the righteousness of God in and through his great sacrifice. Now we have to ask the question, how does a holy God look at sin? Well, we don't know. We just know it's foreign to him. We don't know how ugly it is. We can't even imagine how ugly sin is to holy God. And there is God's son who has taken upon himself the sin of man. He who knew no sin took the sin in order to offer the sacrifice that those believing would be saved. So that's significant in this statement. But there's another thing that is a very winsome thing. I want you to notice right there, he says it twice. My God. My God. My God. That possessive pronoun is everlasting. So it's, you have both and here. You have the forsaken Jesus bearing the sin of man. And you have holy God, in essence, turning away from sin because he's holy and we're not. And Jesus is dying as our substitute taking upon himself our sin, yet in the midst of all of that grief and agony, Jesus says, my God. And that, that signifies that that relationship between Jesus and the Father would never end. It would be ongoing. He would not, he would not turn his back on his only begotten forever. It was for that time, it was for that moment, it was for that sacrifice. And we know that that God the Father raised Jesus from the dead and vindicated his own son. Significant words there, not the only words that Jesus uttered from the cross, but significant and worth pondering for you and me. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Words of Jesus. And some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, they began saying, this man's calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran, taking a sponge. He filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And then Jesus cries out again. Here's the second word. Bible says, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. We think it is at this point that Jesus says, uh, tetelestai. In the Greek, it is finished. It is finished. The payment for sin 
has been offered. The payment for sin has been made. The sin debt of man has been paid. He cried out again with a loud voice. Listen, and yielded up his spirit. That is, verse 50 is significant. We talk about it. Jesus' life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension. This is his death. There had to be a death. The Savior, to be the Savior, had to die. Someone said the other day, is reading some things and they're going back and forth. And they're saying, well, if the Jews had, had received Jesus, he never would have had to die. And to that I say, baloney. He had to die. He had to die. He had to fulfill the mission to save man. And that's what he did. Right there in verse 50. The whole point of, of the betrayal and the trial, the arrest... The, the beating, the scourging, the whole point of all of this, the whole point of the cross is his death. And there it is in verse 50. He didn't faint. He didn't swoon. He didn't just disappear. No, he yielded up his spirit in death. And that's the last we hear from Jesus. He died. There's one more word, and that's a word of faith. <laughs> a word of faith. We had to know there'd be a word of faith spoken at the cross. We've had lots of words of unbelief. That's the crowd, isn't it? But we have a word of faith. Right there in verse 54, the Bible says, Now the centurion... The centurion. Now, this is a Roman soldier. He's got a hundred men under him. And uh, they're trained in war. These guys are soldiers. They are no nonsense. And they do not fear. They're used to fighting and subduing and conquering. They don't fear. Let's read. Now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Now folks, that's a statement of faith. And that is a statement of faith made by a man who is involved in some way here at the cross in the crucifixion of Jesus. These Gentiles, they're Gentiles. They're not numbered among the chief priests who were Jews, those hurling abuse at Christ. But this centurion is a Gentile. And he has enough spiritual insight to look at the things that are going on around him and Jesus specifically on that day and to make this true statement, profession, confession of faith. Truly, this was the Son of God. I love that. Have you made that profession? Have you come to that 
belief in your heart that Jesus was the Son of God. I mean, this centurion is going to see more. I mean, one day they're going to see an empty tomb. Uh, one day they're going to have the testimony that Jesus ascended to heaven. But he sees the cross. He sees the death of Jesus and all the things attached to his death. And he comes to this stark conclusion that Jesus was the Son of God. I just love that. And you know, when you're reading the Gospels, those, those soldiers, those centurions will never disappoint. I want to say all, but I'm not going to say all. I'm going to say most of the time, I believe they're believing. They're believing. They see Jesus. These guys are no nonsense, right? You don't deny what's going on around you. You don't deny miracles coming from a man who speaks the word. And that servant is healed. You don't deny that. What does it all add up to? It all adds up to Jesus is the son of God. And he makes that statement there. It's wonderful. So much for the words at the cross. The works at the cross. Right there in verse 45. On that day, in the middle of the day, right in the middle of the day, when the sun is shining its brightest, it is as though God the Father reached out his hand and touched the sun. And when he did, there it is, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. For three hours in the middle of the day. Darkness. Folks, that doesn't just happen. There Jesus is dying on the cross. He uttered those words of dereliction. And there is darkness over. Now, the Bible says here, all the land. That phrase can be translated, all the earth. But we definitely believe... The land of Israel, right there in that immediate vicinity, God caused darkness to fall over the earth. Darkness is always um, a picture, if you will, that sounds funny to say, a picture of sin. Darkness is a picture of man's unbelief. And uh, we have darkness in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, and darkness was over the face of the earth. We have uh, darkness all throughout uh, the Bible, the testimony of Scripture. Is man is in, when man is in darkness, he is in unbelief. He is estranged from God. He is away from God. He's, he's going to die apart from God. We have darkness all through uh, the Gospels. In fact, uh, in John, uh, what does he say? In, in chapter 1, the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness comprehended it not. Uh, he came into his own, but his own received him not. Jesus, the light, but there's darkness. Why? Why was there darkness at midday? There's darkness at midday because Jesus is taking upon himself the sin of the world. And we read on. Down into verse 51. This one excites me. And behold. And I love that right there. And behold, 
You're reading the whole account, and I think we have one behold, and here it is. That's a big deal. So he says, and behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. Not only did God the Father touch the Son, made darkness, but the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now that veil, that was a thick veil. It doesn't just come apart. But I want to show you something I think is really, really neat. Go back to Genesis 3. We're going somewhere with this, and I want you to see it in your Bible. This is immediately after the fall in Genesis. So Adam and Eve fall into sin. They disobey God's command. They were deceived, and they fell. And the Lord, God, made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. What, they had tried to do what for themselves? They tried to cover with leaves. <laughs> and leaves won't do to cover man's sin. But at last, that's what man does. Trying to cover his tracks with leaves. Leaves won't last, but God made garments. Verse 21 of chapter 3. God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. God says leaves won't do. You got to have garments of skin. There has to be a death. And therefore, look down at verse 23. The Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden. So they, had, they, they were covered now, but they couldn't stay in the Garden. The Lord God sent him out of, from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. Right there in verse 24. So he drove the man out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, if you go over here to Exodus 25, God never wanted these children of Israel to forget what they had lost in the garden. So in his instructions on the Ark of the Covenant, in chapter 25, verses 18 and following, we're going somewhere and we'll get there soon, but this is important. He, he tells them in the instructions, you shall make two cherubim of gold. Now, I wonder what they thought of when they heard that. Two cherubim. Oh, my. They were the ones that guarded the entrance to the Garden of Eden so that Adam and Eve couldn't return. They guarded it with a flaming sword. God's wanting to remind them, listen, in your worship, you're always going to remember what you lost. And you can't get it back. But what we're reading now, tonight, is how we get Access back, access to God. Worship is restored. It's through Jesus. But look at this. You shall make two cherubim of gold, make them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at the one end and one cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim of one piece with the mercy seat at its two ends. The cherubim shall have their wings spread upward, covering the mercy seat with their wings and facing one another. The faces of the cherubim are to be turned toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony which I will give you. There, what's the Lord say? I will meet with you. 
But you know and I know there had to be a sacrifice on that mercy seat. There had to be the blood sprinkled on that mercy seat. And all of this points to Jesus. There I will meet with you. And from the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. And then all you have to do is turn the page to chapter 26 and verse 31. Instructions about the veil. I wonder what he's going to say. There it is. You shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen. It shall be made with cherubim, the work of a skillful workman. And sure enough, in that material, every time the high priest, and he could only go in the Holy Holies one day a year, once. Once a year, he could enter the Holy of Holies. And only the high priest... But what was he looking at? Yes, a veil, a divider. But on that veil was a picture of two cherubim. And those two cherubim always reminded the children of Israel what they lost in the garden. But what happened when Jesus died on that good Friday? Well, we just read it. The veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. Who did that? God did that. Why did he do it? Because his son offered the perfect sacrifice for sin. And in doing so, he opened the way for us to enter his presence by the blood of Jesus, by that sacrifice, by his resurrection, and worship him. True worship has been restored in Jesus Specifically, through his death on the cross. What did Jesus tell the Samaritan woman? She had all these questions about worship. Jesus said, nope, not that mountain. Nope, not that mountain. But the day's coming when true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. And we see the unfolding of that. I shouldn't say unfolding. I should say the ripping of that in the in the uh, tearing of the veil of the temple from top to bottom on the day that Jesus died on the cross. What an act of God! What a work of God that He demonstrated there. And uh, from from that point on. We have access to God. You can read, uh, we don't have time right now, but you can read Hebrews 10. And that will talk about the access that we have uh, through Christ and through his death uh, into, uh, to God and for worship. And behold, don't miss this. The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. So not only do we see God touching the sun and there's darkness and God uh, touching the sanctuary and the veil is, is rent from top to bottom. But we also see God touching the rocks. The Bible says the earth shook and the rocks were split. This is not just an everyday ordinary crucifixion. This is the crucifixion of the Son of God. This is the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
The tombs were open, so God touched the sepulchers. They were open, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city. This is after his resurrection. They entered the holy city and appeared to many. The work of God on that day, unmistakable works of God, the sky black, darkness there, the veil rent, the rocks split, the sepulchers opened, and then the women. Point three, the women. We can't leave them out, right? Where, where are Jesus' friends? Where is Peter? Where, is, where are they? Well, we have no record because the women were at a distance. Right there, many women were there looking on from a distance. And we think possibly they're at a distance because they don't want to be caught up in what was going on right there at the foot of the cross with all the abuse that Jesus was taking. There they are, though. He names them. Mary Magdalene. Praise God. She's right there. And, oh, I forgot to say this. 55. Look at verse 55. Many women were there looking on from a distance. So there were many women... And then he describes them. He says, who had followed Jesus from Galilee? When Matthew uses the word followed, he usually means their followers. Otherwise, he wouldn't use the word followed. So we're thinking these are believing women and they are there. Their presence was noticed. Their presence was documented. And while there were many, he names three. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and then the mother of the sons of Zebedee. We believe her name is Salome that uh, Luke refers to in his gospel. And there you have the wonder, the wonders at Calvary. The day Jesus died and the real beginning of his glorification. Father in heaven, thank you for the time together tonight. Uh, we we stand, Lord, before you in amazement at the links that you went through to save us. And we feel like the psalmist that said, "What is what? Who are we that you would take thought of us?" But Lord, you sent your only begotten to die for us. We thank you for his substitutionary death on the cross, that he died a death that we deserved, that he took our place and he suffered and died and he absorbed the father's wrath on sin. So Lord, thank you. We can just say thank you. And we, we, uh, want to express that we love you, but we thank you for first loving us. Help us to follow you more closely. Help us to become the worshipers that you would have us to be. We'll give you all the praise from here to glory in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.